0: against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two other along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you lose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. God bless his word this morning. I
1: always love to hear... uh... Z. Reed, and uh, Nancy Bloor tells me every time that she hears Z. Reed, she says, I just love that man. Where's he from? I always tell her. He's from Liberia, and um, it's just a delight to hear those in our congregation who come from different parts of the world read the scriptures. I have to put my daughter-in-law, though she doesn't come up and read here publicly on Lord's Day, right on near the top of that list. I love her British accent. Um, happy birthday to Nancy! She and I are real close. Uh, she's a very young lady. She just entered the same year that of my age. So um, we're we're glad that uh, Jeff and Cassandra and the girls could uh, honor a mother and a grandmother that way. I also want to say it's good to see Charlotte with us today. God is giving her good recovery, and her faithful caregiver there with her. All of the time, helping her so much, and that's a that's a beautiful thing. And on one more little loose end, I got a couple of buddies here today, and I'm I'm wondering if you guys would just come up and and uh, give me a hug, Roscoe, and Jirel. Would you guys come up here one sec? These guys I met, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we became friends this week, uh, especially this guy. Roscoe here. What did I give you? Uh, A turtle. A turtle, yeah. (laughs) He promised me he would try to keep it alive. I brought a turtle over there, and it was a box turtle, and these guys were really enjoying it. But they're just part of the fruit of the VBS ministry this past week. Great success. You know from reading email that we had, um, I think, 67 Kids on the last night, and that 's way beyond what it 's been in the past, so we 're going to be buddies, right yes, sir, is that turtle still living yes sir all right let 's let you want some turtle soup <laughs> no, sir. no, all right, all right, you guys go back with mr. Justin <laughs> all right we are very mindful of the castles this morning as well, though they were not specifically mentioned in that prayer we are praying. For you guys, if you're watching us this morning, we love you and miss you and are uh, excited about what God is doing in and through you. Now, uh, Jonathan made mention of the Twisted series, and I got to thinking, is this series about texts that are twisted, or is the series itself twisted? I hope it's not the series that's twisted, but it's a series called Twisted. And this morning we come to our fourth sermon on texts of Scripture that have somehow become twisted to mean something which God never intended them to mean. We're not suggesting there's always a malicious motive behind the twisting of these texts. In some cases, there is a sinister motive, especially when liberals get a hold of the Bible. I was thinking this morning about, you know, that statement David made upon the death of his dearest friend Jonathan. It was sort of a eulogy he was lamenting, and he said, Jonathan, my love for you was greater than my love for women. And the liberals come along and say, see, he was a homosexual. Utterly twisting. So there are people who maliciously twist and bend and distort the Word of God, but not all. Sometimes it's simply due to poor, careless interpreting of the Word of God, not giving due attention to the immediate context, or not giving due attention to the teaching of the Bible as a whole. Just kind of making the text say what we want it to say or what we hope it says. And here too, brothers and sisters, I want to urge us to be very, very careful because this can become a subtle temptation to us as well. You see, we do bring our bias to the text. This is what I've always thought these verses mean, and I'm not going to open my mind to any other possibilities. What I believe, I'm going to believe until I die or Jesus comes back. Please don't confuse my made up mind with the facts. I like what I think this text means. But to be careful about that, sometimes we actually allow our systematic theology to drive our exegetical theology. Now, those are probably the two biggest words I'm going to use in this whole sermon. Those are two branches of theology. Systematic theology is where we take the themes of the Bible and gather all the texts that teach about that particular subject. Exegetical theology is where we go to the text and we take out of it, we exegete, we take out the true meaning of the text. And all systematic theology is to be based upon exegetical theology. That is the first and foremost of all theologies. But strangely, once we become systematic theologians, and we all are to some extent, we bring the systematic theology to the text and we interpret the text based on the systematic theology. That's not good. That's not right. We've got this little pet doctrine all neatly packaged, and we're not going to unwrap it. And that's part of the purpose for this series. We, as your pastors, want to teach you how to interpret the Bible carefully and accurately. Let me put it this way. We want you to get better and better acquainted with Herman. Herman is a dear friend to Bible lovers. You know Herman, don't you? His last name is Eudix. Mr. Eudix, Hermeneutics. He specializes in the science of biblical interpretation. Now, today, we come to this wonderful passage that Z read for us. Only two verses we're focusing on. And I suggest to you that these two verses are frequently twisted to mean something God never intended them to mean. And so according to the pattern that we followed thus far in these three previous sermons, I want to spend a few minutes clearing away the debris of the twisted understanding of verses 19 and 20. And then I will focus our attention on the true and wonderful meaning of these precious verses. So let's look at the text. And I want you to notice for a moment the Holman Christian Standard translation of this text. It's really, I think, one of the best. I've read all of the translations this week. And they're all good, but I think this is the best. Here's what Jesus said. Try to imagine hearing these words for the first time in your life. You're you're, you're with him. You're one of the twelve. And he looks at you and he says, I, again, again, I assure you, if two of you on earth agree about any matter that you pray for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For, where, where, Two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there among them. Now, these precious words of our Savior have come to be twisted in at least three ways. They're abused, first of all, by this understanding. If Christ is especially present, wherever two or three are gathered in his name, then we don't need to go to church. You know why? Because we are the church. Two or three, Jesus is there. It's all we need. Forget about organized religion. Let's just enjoy being our own church. We'll baptize any converts we have, and we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper whenever we want to. We do that at Christian colleges upon graduation. We're the church because Jesus is present. Dear brothers and sisters, the special presence of Christ does not a church make. The special presence of Christ does not make a gathering the church. The special presence of Christ is simply, though gloriously, the special presence of Christ. Christ. That's all. That's abuse number one. Abuse number two. Another way this text is twisted. It goes like this. Wow. Look at this, man. According to these words, we can get from God whatever we want. That's what Jesus said. All we have to do is ask. He said... Anything we ask. Let's go. If we want a million dollars, we can have a million dollars. This is an open ended, unqualified blanket, no strings attached, no limitations, promise. Let's go. Let's get it. He's promising the world. Wait a minute. Not so fast. What about a few other texts in the Bible? And now I'm going to illustrate what I meant a while ago when I said the Bible must be interpreted by the Bible. So I'm just going to ask you to look at these passages very quickly. We're not going to spend any time on them. Go back to Psalm 66, verse 18, and just notice the something that the psalmist confessed. He was making a personal confession, one that we ought to make and remind ourselves often. Psalm 66, 18. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, cherishing sin just just in your heart, not outwardly necessarily, the Lord would not have listened. What are you saying, David? You're saying it makes a difference how you live with regard to how your prayers are answered? Yes, that's what I'm saying. If I regard iniquity in my heart, I have no grounds to expect God to listen to me when I pray. Go to Isaiah chapter 1 and notice verse 15. This is a soul-searching chapter, especially for the people of Israel. When you come to verse 15, God says this. And he says this to us as well, at least in principle. I know this has its primary application for the nation of Israel in all of their unbelief and idolatry. I understand, but the principle transcends. God says, when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Why? Why? Because your hands are full of blood. You think it makes a difference how we live with regard to our prayers? How about 1 Peter 3 7? We're reminded of this quite often, especially when we think about our marriages and when we think specifically about husbands and how they should live with their wives in an understanding way. 1 Peter 3 7 The apostle simply says, likewise, husbands, Live with your wives in an understanding way. Think about them. Know your wife. Understand your wife. Don't say, I can't understand her. You can understand her. You're not trying to understand her. Talk to her. Listen to her. Observe her. And then live in a way that accords with what you understand about your wife. What's the big deal, Peter? The big deal is this. Lest or so that your prayers may not be hindered. That's the last few words of verse 7. Peter, are you telling me that how I live makes a difference with how many prayers I get answered? Yes, that's exactly what Peter is saying. And then finally, I just want to take you to one more text. First John chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. You should jot these texts down because these texts give a qualification for the promises that seem absolute and without qualification. First John 5 14 and 15. And this is the confidence that we have toward him that If we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And we know that He hears us in whatever we ask. If He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of Him. My number one goal is just to be sure that I get the ear of God, because if I get the ear of God, He's going to give me whatever I ask. That's true. But how do you get the ear of God? We must ask, according to verse 14 things that are according to his will. So we can't just take Matthew 18, verses 19 and 20, and take them completely out of the context of the Bible, and say with those who've abused the text, you see, you can get whatever you want. You want a million dollars, you can get it. God has promised to answer those prayers. So, This is what theologians mean when they speak about the analogy of Scripture and the analogy of truth. The Bible is organic. It's one whole. It all fits. It's all joined together. Nothing contradicts anything else. The overall explains the particulars. And so we must interpret the Bible with the Bible. Now, I'm not going to turn us to this text, but you know that wonderful promise about healing in first er, in James chapter five. We love that promise. It says, if anyone is sick, let them call for the elders of the church. By the way, though I think it's good to lay hands on people at church, and we do that, and we pray for them, and we pray for healing, because we believe in healing. But the text actually says that the sick person is to call for you and you're to go to their home. And it says that when the elders lay, anoint them with oil and lay their hands upon them and pray for them, the prayer of faith will heal them. It simply says that. So may we expect every time we lay hands on someone, anoint them with oil and pray for their healing, that without exception they will be healed. No! Why? Because sometimes it's not the will of God to heal people. We have to ask things that are in accordance with His will. So you can see the folly of this text, but people come to Matthew 18, 19, and 20, and that's what they make it to mean. And then there's a third abuse, and I can't spend much time on this. It's certainly a more um, respectable misunderstanding and misapplication of the text. It goes like this. The promise of the special presence of Jesus is only for the gathered church. It's only when the whole church is together. The argument, based upon the whole passage that Z read for us, is that you see verses 15 through 18 are about church discipline. How to reconcile brothers that are broken. And if someone persists in sin after being confronted by two or three others, they are to be brought before the church. And if the person refuses to repent, then the church has to discipline him or her by excommunication. And what the church does Wisely, according to the word of God, if in fact it is wise and according to the word of God, heaven itself affirms. Heaven amens. And what we bind on earth, God affirms in heaven. And what we release on earth, that is to say, release people from church discipline because they've come to true repentance, heaven releases. That passage is about church discipline. No question. And immediately on the heels comes this wonderful promise about prayer. And so the argument is, you see, the two or three are the church but there are huge problems with that. I've done very serious study over this. I've read over 30 commentaries. I wrote a 3,000-plus-word letter to a very dear friend of mine to help him understand that, in fact, Jesus is changing subjects in verse 19 and 20. It begins with with what in Greek is Considered a discourse marker. It happens to be a word pronounced palin, which is translated again. It's a a change of subject. It's not about the church gathering in its larger numbers. It's about disciples, true Christians, gathering in very small numbers. It's virtually impossible to conceive of a two-member church. Have any of you in your entire life heard of a church that had only two members no is it a husband and a wife is it a brother and a sister is it a pilot and a co-pilot is it the jailer and the prisoner who is it Jesus is saying to us in this passage look I'm not only with the church when it gathers because it too gathers in my name be sure that the special presence of Christ I'm just putting this in here right now so that I don't leave it out. Do not misunderstand me. The special presence of Christ is with his church whenever she meets, because she meets in his name. But the point Jesus is making, what is fundamental to the presence of Christ isn't how many people or whether the whole church is gathered. The fundamental principle is gathering in his name. And Jesus is saying, if only two people gather in my name, two disciples, huddling somewhere in fear, in desperation, if they gather in the name of Jesus, he promises his special presence to be with them. And so I think that that passage has inadvertently been robbed of its true comfort. If Jesus, in fact, meant to teach us that whenever we're gathered in small, little, tiny groups, is there a smaller group than two? <laughs> no. That's the smallest group possible. And Jesus is saying, when even just two, or if you want, add another one, are gathered in my name, I promise you, I'm there. I'm with you. And you know what else? I promise you that the things you agree upon in praying to God will be granted to you by my Father who is in heaven. That's really what it's about. So that's, that's all I'm going to say. Now, I'll admit to you that's a, that's a sort of an inordinate amount of time, but, you know, I'm trying to accomplish two purposes. I'm trying to show you the fallacy of some interpretations of this passage, and I just showed you three, and now I want to spend the rest of our time showing you what this passage is, in fact, really about. So once again, let's look at the Holman Christian Standard translation. And I want you to imagine again hearing these words for the first time in your life, Jesus says again, I assure you. Don't you like that? I assure you that if, and I'm just going to insert the words only for a moment. They're not in the text, but that's, that's the thrust of this. If only two of you on earth agree on any matter that you pray for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For, don't miss this, because here's the reason, here's the ground for where, in that place, wherever it may be, where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there. I am there. Among them. And I say again, dear brothers and sisters, aren't these words wonderful? You notice the key words. I love the word assure. I assure you. Two is a key word. Just two people. Agree is a key word. I'm going to say more about that in a moment. Any is a key word. Any matter. It will be done. In my name are key words. So let's take a look at this now from sort of what I would call a 30,000 foot perspective. Why do we say that? Because that's, that's the altitude of most flights between thirty and 40,000. So we're way up now. We're looking down. Now these two verses are two verses on purpose because they're two separate sentences. And I want to ask two questions. First one is, what is the promise of verse 19? Okay, let's look at it again. Jesus says, I assure you, this is a promise, if only two of you on earth agree on any matter that you pray for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. So what is the promise? The promise is a promise, an extravagant promise, an extravagant promise concerning prayer. He says, any matter. That's what makes us extravagant. If you agree on any matter that you pray, it will be done for you. What is the promise of verse 20? Look at it. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there. The promise is that Jesus will be there. So really, the special promise is a promise about prayer and a promise about the presence of Christ. And by the way, this special presence of Christ is only promised in two other places in the whole Bible. That would be a trivia question, wouldn't it? And I think some of you would pull that out if we took time in a normal teaching session. The one that comes to mind is, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the earth, the Great Commission. The other one that may not come to your mind so quickly is when Paul needed comfort. And in Acts 18 and verse 10, he was told, don't be fearful. I know you have reason to be fearful, but I'm going to take care of you. Stay here, press on, persevere, keep preaching, because I am with you. And I have many people in this city. There's only three places in the whole Bible that the special presence of Christ is promised. But so we can put this together now. The promise is really very simply this I will answer your prayers whenever you gather in my name because I am present with you. So we have a promise concerning prayer resting on a promise concerning presence. Do you see that? Do you... I'm just trying to help you a little bit exegetically. You look at the passage. You don't have to be a pastor. You don't have to be a theologian. You don't have to go to seminary to stare at verses 19 and 20 and say, let's see. What's 19 saying? What's saying that anything that um, that I may agree with with another brother or sister and bring to God in prayer, it's going to be done for us by God in heaven. And then you notice that verse 20 begins with the word for. 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 Whenever you see a for, you know, ask what it's there for. He's making an argument. He's saying, here's the reason. Here's the reason. Because whenever two or three gather together in my name, I'm there. The reason you can be sure that your prayers will be answered is because I am going to be there. Do you see that? That's what he's saying. We miss that part of the argument. We just get the first part. Oh, whenever you agree with somebody, you pray, God is going to hear it in heaven and he's going to answer. Why? For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there. So the I am there has something to do with the prayers being answered. Doesn't it? Obviously. Otherwise, for doesn't mean anything. Why would Jesus say for if he wasn't giving us a reason for why the prayers are answered? He is giving us a reason for which the prayers are answered. Because of his special presence. And I want to push on that just one step further, dear brothers and sisters. He doesn't say, I will be there. Notice the text says, I am there. I'm already there. This isn't a post-Easter promise that when I've died and been raised from the dead and ascend to heaven, lo, I will be with you always. That's true. This is a pre-Easter promise you can count on your prayers being answered when you gather together in my name because i am there and your prayers are answered because i am there and i take those prayers to heaven for you don't think of me says our savior as merely someone who intercedes for us now at the right hand of god think about that that's precious think about that for the rest of your life It's unbelievably precious, but this text says He doesn't just intercede in heaven. He intercedes on earth. That's what this text says. He is with us. That's why our prayers are answered. And the beauty is, of course, that Jesus is... He is the conductor. (laughs) He is the person who carries the prayers to heaven because he is connected to both parties. Who are the two parties? God in heaven, his disciples on earth. How is he related to the parties? He's related to the disciples on earth by taking on human flesh. He became like us. He identified with us in his human nature. That's why the apostle to the Peter or to the uh, Hebrews says that he is a sympathetic priest because he became like us. He's part of us. But is he related to the person petitioned? Those are the petitioners. Yes. He's his son. He's God. He's divine. And so he's the perfect person to assure us that our prayers are going to be answered because he's with us. He's affirming our agreement unless it's foolish. And he's taking those prayers to his heavenly Father in his divinity and assuring that they will be answered. But notice there are some qualifications, aren't there? Do you see any qualifications? Let's think hard here for a minute. Now, let's go back. We're in the classroom. This is, a, this is a, a New Testament survey class, and we're in the Gospel of Matthew, and we're looking at Jesus' teaching on prayer. And I'll give you this much of a hint there is one qualification to the promise of verse 19 outside of the text, it's not in the text. There's there's a promise in verse 19. There's a qualifier in verse 19, and there's a qualifier in verse 20. Before you look for the qualifier, let me just say this to you, um, so that we can clear this away. I said there's a qualifier outside of the text that could keep this this promise from becoming realistic. Now, if you've been with me, you're going to know the answer. And if you haven't, maybe you just weren't with me quite enough. Okay. Why is it that some of our prayers are not answered, even though they're well-motivated? You say, PT, you already answered that question. You took us to four texts. He said sometimes sin keeps us from being heard. And you especially pointed out from First John chapter 5 that sometimes the things that we ask God for and we think are so right for reasons known only to him because he's omniscient, are not, in fact, really good for us. We think we're asking for bread, but if we really knew what we were asking for and if we really got it, we'd find out it was a stone. And God says, no, I'm not going to give you that. Do you realize how bad off a lot of us would be if we got everything we asked for? God is too wise to be mistaken and too good to be unkind. So that's the qualifier already Covered that, didn't I? One of the things that qualifies this promise is not in the text, but it's in the big text. It's in the Bible. But there are two qualifications in this text. Now, again, think biblically. Think like an exegete. Look at the text. Stare at it. What is the qualifier in verse 19? Truly I say to you that whatever... Excuse me, verse 19. Again I say to you, now I'm reading the ESV. If, if, do you hear bells ringing? Well, you should all. Whenever you, whenever you read the Bible, you come to if. You should ding, 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 ding. Oh, this is good. this is this is not unconditional. This is conditional. This is conditional. If, if two of you agree. Of course, we're on Earth. If we were in heaven, we wouldn't be praying. If two of you on earth agree about anything they ask, why is that important? Because we're dumb, because we're stupid, because we lack discernment, because we think we need something and we're ready to go get it. And our friend says, no, we can't pray for that. That's not wise. That's not biblical. That We can't expect God to answer that. Look, brother, let me show you this text over here. Sister, let me show you this. God's already made it clear he doesn't want us to do that. You're right. I was foolish. But we come to a brother and say, listen, we just had a week of VBS down on West 5th Street. We've never seen as the manifest blessing of God like we did this week. We want to plant a church there. Justin and Rebecca want true converts. We don't want to steal people from other churches. We could get people from other churches in that community to come. We want to start with a nucleus of true converts. Wouldn't it bring glory to God if he saved some adults as well as children? Wouldn't it bring glory to God if he saved some adults because some of the kids got saved? Hey, could we have a prayer meeting? Let's get together. Do you agree with me? And the brother or sister says, yes, I agree with you. This will bring glory to God. Let's pray. Let's pray. And as we pray, we comfort ourselves with this promise that if just two of us on earth agree about a matter in prayer that we are convinced would bring glory to God, we can rest assured that it will be done for us unless in the mysterious providence and wisdom of God It is not his will. That's always going to be the undergirding qualifier. Okay? But I want to say something right here because I'm afraid I won't say it at the end of the sermon. When you read this passage, other than the word agree, and by the way, the other qualifier is in verse 20, isn't it? Do you see the one in verse 20? Look at verse 20. What's the qualifier in verse 20? For where two or three are gathered, does it say there I am among them? No. Where two or three are gathered in my name. This means as disciples of mine, as those who know me, and as those who love me, as those who trust me, as those who find me to be their master, as those who are disciples to me, as those who are trusting in a perfect payment for their sins provided by him. That's, all of that is wrapped up in, in my name. So those are the two qualifiers. There needs to be agreement, and we need to be sure that we're coming in the name of Jesus. Okay. Here's, my, here's my burden, brothers and sisters. Other than those two qualifications, agreement, and in the name of Jesus, do you see any other qualifications? Did Jesus feel obligated to say, by the way, this will not work unless you are asking according to the will of God? Is that in the text? Is that in James chapter 5 about healing? Is that in many of the promises of Jesus about prayer? Ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened to you. Where's the qualifier there? I missed that one. Whatever you ask in my name, according to my will, shall be granted to you. And when the disciples couldn't cast out the demons and they come down, the three come down with Jesus from the mountain and they say, what's happening? What's up, Lord? What's the deal here? And he says, oh, you of little faith. You want to know the answer to your question? Your faith's too small. Your faith is too small. Now, that sounds like some kind of charismatic, Pentecostal, I don't know, some kind of weird, far-out, overextended confidence in about... Really? Just listen to Jesus' words. If you had the faith the size of a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, be cast into the sea, and it'll go into the sea. Your problem fellas, is that your faith is too small. That's my problem. But my burden, brothers and sisters, again, I keep trying to get back to this and I never quite get to it, is that we, we want to quickly run to the qualifiers. And I think this probably rooted in some unbelief. Because we want to feel good about why our prayers aren't being answered. We want to say, well, it's the sovereignty of God. Wasn't according to his will. And what I think God wants us to do with this text is come to this text and see it boldly and say, you know what? There's a huge difference between what this text seems to promise. It's mountainous in what it promises. And I got this little tiny thing over here that I'm experiencing. It's so disproportionate. Why is there a big disproportion between all of the stuff God promises and this tiny little thing over here that I'm experiencing? Something's wrong. Yes, something is wrong. And don't quickly run to the sovereignty of God. Remember the words of Jesus. Oh, you of little faith. My promises are grand and glorious and extravagant. So, am I now taking away what I taught earlier? That there are qualifications? No, I'm not. We must agree. We must come in his name. And of course, the absolute ultimate sovereignty and will of God is the determining factor. I am not going to take away what I've laid down. Of course not. But what I'm saying is that these these texts don't quickly run there. We quickly run there. And we need to see a greater proportion between the promise and the deliverance. So... I want to conclude and I'm just going to leave you with these questions and I get a couple quotes and then I'm done. One, can you truly, with integrity, by true saving faith, based on a real relationship to Jesus Christ, gather in his name? You say, what are you getting at? I'm just saying that coming together and using the words we pray in Jesus' name doesn't really mean you've gathered in His name. If you're not truly trusting in Him and know Him and love Him and walking with Him, those are just words. I'm asking you, can you genuinely gather in His name? Because you know Him. He's your Savior. You trust Him. He's paid for your sins. You're walking with Him. You've got a relationship. That's question number one. Number two, do you believe in the extravagance of this promise? Or you do you default to the qualifications? I've already asked that in essence. Number three, do you see the value of? Listen to this word carefully: social prayer. Social meaning more than one. I'm reading a great book right now, or a great sermon right, by Thomas Watson on private prayer, and I'm big on private prayer. And I think if we don't have any private prayer life, forget about your public prayer life. You're phony. You're phony. You're phony. But, if you only have a private prayer life, you're phony in a different way. God calls us to come together to pray. This promise is only for two or more. This special promise is for two or more. Of course we're in the presence of God. We live in his presence. He's omnipresent. And by the way, if two or three gather here, have his presence, they can gather in 10,000 different places at the same time all over this world and have his presence, which means that this Savior is omnipresent. It's one of his ways of alluding to his omnipresence. But my question is, do you see the value of social prayer? Do you think it's good to get together with other Christians and pray? Yes, because there's a special promise connected with it. We should be attending small prayer meetings. This is not motivation by guilt, but there's a good one going on in Jim Golly's classroom every Sunday morning. And if you don't feel like you have a heart to pray, which I often don't when I am able to come, I find that by halfway into that thing, I'm broken And it prepares me not only to pray, but for worship. What about the ladies who gather to pray once a month? What about the Thursday morning prayer meeting up in Pastor Jonathan's office? Eight or nine men gathering at 6.30 in the morning. Sweet. Laying hold of the throne. Laying hold of the horns of the altar. Having the special presence of Christ. Number four are you taking full advantage of such prayer meetings that was implied in question 3 number 5 is our church is our church obsessed and preoccupied and characterized by such prayer meetings listen to one pastor's answer no no sadly no no it's sad i said is our church obsessed of course we have prayer meetings and they're sweet, and they're precious. We're not a prayerless church. I'm asking a different question. Is our church obsessed? Are we preoccupied? Are we characterized by such prayer meetings? I think I was with Dave Owens the other day, and I made this point in praying, or wherever it was. I just remember it felt like God led me to say that. I said, Lord, we don't want to be known as a church that prays. Well, in a sense we do. But you see if that's your goal? If that's your goal to be known? That's probably pride. But if we are, we will be known, but being known isn't nearly as important as being a church of prayer. We need to be a people of prayer. I don't care if anybody knows about it. It's not important. We won't put that on Facebook. We are a church of prayer. But are we really? Do we really believe that where two or more are gathered in his name that there is a special presence? And of course I'm not just trying to encourage prayer meetings that have something to do with this church and its gatherings. I'm hoping that prayer meetings will be taking place all over Davis County and Owensboro by little groups of you getting together in one another's homes. Or even if it's not regular, it, say, let's, just have a little, let's just have a little season of prayer. It would be a shame for us to have this great evening together and not close in a time of prayer. We We haven't yet met the promise. The promise is that if we're gathered in his name for the purpose of praying about matters, that we'll have a special presence. Let's get the special presence. That's the question. So how do our answers to prayer stack up with this wonderful promise? I think there's a serious disproportion. That's what I'm willing to say. I think there's a serious disproportion. Listen to Spurgeon and these are my final quotes. In a great sermon on this text, his outline is simple. He speaks of matters not essential and matters essential according to this promise. And he says what's not essential is the numbers, only two. Two is good enough. The rank, they don't have to be big shots, they can be little shots. The place isn't important. The time of the meeting is important. The form of the meeting is isn't important. And then he says this. Under place of meeting, he speaks as follows, quote, neither is a word said as to the place except that it says where two or three. That's why I don't want us to believe this is only true if the whole church is gathered. The whole church is never gathered. People are on vacation. We have 10, 12 families gone this Lord's Day on vacation. Great! People are sick. The whole church is never gathered. This text isn't just about the whole church. And so Spurgeon says... Neither is a word said as to place except that it says where two or three. Where means anywhere. In any place where two or three are met together in Christ's name, there he is. Not in the cathedral only, but in the barn. Not in the tabernacle only, but in the field. Where means everywhere. In the loneliest place, in the faraway forest, in an upper room, or on board ship, or in a hospital. Anywhere Christ will be with you when you are with him in prayer. Great quote. And then one final quote. You have to believe this is killing me because I have other precious quotes on. they will just maybe share them with you privately. But this is what Matthew Henry, dear old Matthew Henry said, though but two or three are met together, Christ is among them. This is an encouragement to the meeting of a few when it is either First, of choice, because the secret worship performed by particular persons and public services of the whole congregation, there may be occasion sometimes for two or three to come together, either for mutual assistance in conference or joint assistance in prayer, not in contempt of public worship. No, we're not going to quit gathering publicly to pray, but in concurrence with it, their Christ will be present. Or secondly, by necessity, when there are not more than two or three to come together. Think of Dwayne and Kimberly, I can't get them off my mind. It's not true with Blake and Nikki. They're around Christian people. It's not even true with our brother Heath and Jessica. They're with a team. But Dwayne and Kimberly can't find a brother or a sister to pray with. And one of the things I'm praying with him, and I'm privileged to talk to him every Tuesday morning at 8.30, we're vibing and have a little time of prayer. And I'm praying that God will do something besides establish the seminary. Give them some converts. Give them some true Christians to have fellowship with. But right now, I see two people. One's named Kimberly and one's named Dwayne. And when they come together and plead with God, they have the special presence of God. And that's what Matthew Henry is speaking about. There aren't more than two or three. Or if there be, they dare not for fear of persecution. Yet... Christ will be in the midst. For it is not the multitude, but the faith and sincere devotion of the worshipers that invites the presence of Christ. And though there be but two or three, the smallest number that can be, yet if Christ make one among them, okay, you got the two or three in Christ, who is the principal one, their meeting is as honorable and comfortable as if there were two or three thousand. That's what Matthew Henry said. So dear people, you know how this text is abused, but setting that aside, how is this text being used by us? Let's get together with another believer, or two, or as many as we can gather, and experience the special presence of Christ. And what does that special presence of Christ do? It assures that our prayers are answered. Again, I assure you, if two of you agree about any matter that you pray for, it will be done for you by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this text, and we don't know whether to shout for glory or weep for sorrow because on the one hand, it's so wonderful, it's so sweet, it's so precious. On the other hand, it's so humiliating to think that this is at our disposal This is at our disposal. And we don't take advantage of it as we ought. God, forgive us. Lord Jesus, forgive us for, in a sense, despising your special presence. Because if we thrived on that, if we longed for that, if we panted for that, we would be praying with two or three all the time. Oh, Jesus, forgive us. But help us, we pray in your name. Amen.